Just a quick message before we get started. VT Diggers Spring Fun Drive is happening now. And this year, we're partnering with the Children's Literacy Foundation, also known as CLIF. CLIF donates brand new books to low-income, at-risk, and rural Vermont children. And right now, for every donation to VT Digger, we'll donate one book to a Vermont child in need. Head to vtdigger.org donate to support local reporting and literacy. Thanks. From VT Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, the road ahead for Vermont schools. Conversations around the impacts of COVID in schools tend to revolve around the risk of an education gap, framing the pandemic as a lost year for students. But some experts are pushing back on that narrative, arguing that the adaptations schools have made this year could provide a roadmap to a more inclusive education system. This week, we held a live panel discussion about this as part of our FAQ Live series, where we put your questions about the pandemic to experts in different fields. For this session, we spoke to Amanda Garces of the Vermont Human Rights Commission and founder of the Education Justice Coalition of Vermont, Deborah Lissy Baker, formerly of UVM's Center for Disability and Community Inclusion, Michael Martin, Director of Learning for the South Burlington School District, Salilo Swain, a junior at Champlain Valley Union High School, and Bruce Pandia, a senior at U32 High School. We started with Salilo, who said despite all the unpredictability of this year, there have been challenges and successes. It has, for me, been a mix of good and bad. I'm deaf, and when the pandemic started, some of my classes became easier because having teachers pre-record videos on uploaded to YouTube with captions actually allowed me to access stuff more. And some classes got even harder, like social studies and history where it relied on live oration. And so I had a mix of good and bad in terms of accessing learning. And one of the biggest initial difficulties was with internet access. Um, I didn't have good Wi-Fi. And so I not only had a harder time in some of my classes accessing the learning, but like the visual and the audio wouldn't be synced. And it's simple things like that that made it much, much harder for me to access my education. And I think the biggest part for me, though, was the emotional aspect because I, my favorite part of school is my relationships with my teachers and I consider teaching an act of love and it was just really heartbreaking to have to kind of leave that relationship and go into Zoom and that for me was the hardest part because I lacked motivation and lacked interest without my relationships with to my peers and my teachers, so yeah. Wow. Thank you for uh, for sharing that with us. Bruce, what about you? Uh, yeah, I think at the beginning, it was much more difficult. It was difficult to transition to uh, uh, U32 is doing hybrid learning. So we're doing one week in school and one week out of school. Uh, and at first, it was difficult to, you know, get things done during the remote weeks. It felt very undirected. It was uh, just overall a challenge. But I think that 
as I got more into the year, I think that it became much easier. And I think overall, the experience has been uh, challenging, but not not I- extremely. Uh, and there have been some classes that I haven't been able to to take. Well, I started uh, started the year off taking a chorus, uh, but it's of course very difficult to do uh, chorus uh, over uh, over Zoom, uh, and we didn't really get to do much actual uh, actual singing, for example. Uh, and I ended up having to drop that class because it was uh, just difficult to keep up with remote work in a in a class like that but i think that overall my experience has been has been all right but obviously not ideal i want to jump to you michael you have written recently about the pitfalls of framing this year around the negative impacts to students Um, and i want to ask you what's the danger there and what alternate narrative would you propose yeah, thank you, Mike. Um, I just wanted to start by saying, you know, that it's been a tough year, right? It's been a tough year and a half that families have suffered, students have suffered, schools have scrambled, and uh, and schools have really been trying to do the best we can. And we, you know, appreciated the. I really appreciated the comments from students on this panel. Uh, I just want to acknowledge, like, there's been lost instructional time. There have been serious challenges to access when you think about broadband access around our own state. Um, when we think about communication with, with families, especially families whose first language is in English. Um, there's been too much screen time. There's been the challenges around learner engagement um, and especially this feeling of, of being disconnected. So I just wanna acknowledge those, those challenges. And um, however, I, I think that the, the answer is not to throw a bunch of remediation at students. I think there's an incredible opportunity right now for us to rethink how we wanna rebuild community in schools and how we wanna redesign school um, based on what we've learned and some of the silver linings that we just heard from our students. I wanna uh, ask you, Deborah. I know that you know, you've been working with schools for a long time. Uh, you've worked with schools on issues of things like mental health and trauma from from even before the pandemic. And I wonder where you fall on this question of kind of how we begin analyzing the impacts of COVID. I think that it's important to put this this last year in the context of um, things like disability and mental health and trauma issues um, in a longer span. Because even in 2019, if you look at the statistics of Vermont youth students and their experiences with mental health and well-being, the very significant number of students were dealing with depression or a feeling of hopelessness. Um, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, it's 31% of uh, high school students and uh, maybe 24% of middle school students expressed those things in a health department study. And so, and just before the pandemic started, Amanda asked me to go and meet with her to go to a, a local elementary school. And the, what the, the principal, the amazing principal is totally committed to inclusion and being having a school climate that really works for kids. Um, but he, his real big concern was how do I help these students deal with some of the mental health and trauma and the complex issues that they're dealing with that just feel overwhelming to them. And then the pandemic hit. So I think it's important to realize that many of the things that uh, 
are really being exposed as challenges are things that were challenges before they're just more visible now and that we need to take what we've learned about what we can do to create solutions with students and with families and with educators and with community partners um, uh, and, and not look at just the deficit orientation but really think just as Mike has, Michael has said you know what solutions you know how can we come together and, and really build some real partnerships that mean that both through for the rest of this pandemic, which may go on for a while, and in any future pandemics, we've built some capacity we haven't had before, and we can sustain that, and we can truly have, as Lilo said, a loving, a trusting community a network that we're working together with to make school something that feels safe for all students. And I think that um, uh, for some students, they've talked about how mental health is, they felt really challenged by the uh, social um, what one student said yesterday, social disconnect. So that's been a real challenge for students and also younger students, you know, not being able to be face to face. That's a huge challenge for younger students. Um, but at the same time, for some students, if they've been in environments where they felt bullied, or they had to fight to be heard or to feel like they're, they're their identity was respected, then there's been a bit of relief. So they're balancing two different things, both the challenges and the potential losses, but also some of the reprieve that just having a little space for themselves and for some students, um, that's worked really well. So I think I'm hoping that we can take some of the innovation and the tremendous commitment that educators and families and students have shown and use it to move forward even even more in terms of where we need to be. I, I really echo what what Michael just said. Amanda, what do you what do you think about what's been said so far? I mean, how do we how do we work towards kind of finding that balance? Yeah, I mean, I think I just want to highlight this conversation around many of the issues that have sprouted have roots. They've been there all this time. All of them. They just had hadn't you know been up. Um, as we see them now. So uh, COVID really exacerbated some of these issues that we've had for a long time. All of these conversations in our mental health, social emotional learning, having inclusive environments, all of that were conversations pre-COVID. Um, and so I think that the beauty of this moment is to re really look at how do we transform? How do we shift the system? How do we say, it wasn't working before. We cannot be talking about coming back to normal. Normal wasn't good for many kids in our districts. So um, it's just like really shifting the conversation. So I am not an educator. I am a parent and I am very involved in schools. I'm also the, the one of the co-chairs for the Act One Working Group, which is looking at educational standards. Uh, Michael, Bruce, and Salilo actually are part of the working group as well. And you know, it's really tied in. Some of the work that's happening in the state is really looking at transformation. And this is a perfect opportunity to really look at together, how do we transform an educational system that wasn't working for all before the pandemic? And so I think that, you know, everything that has been said just kind of reinforces this conversation around moving from COVID to not normal, moving to transform, let's transform. Let's those roots really become flowers instead of the thorns that we have right now. We'll be right back. Just 
Just a quick message from our underwriters. Community Health is Vermont's largest federally qualified health center. Affordable, accessible, quality primary health care at Community Health includes dental, pediatric, behavioral health, and pharmacy services. With practices in Rutland, Paulette, Shoreham, Brandon, and Castleton. New patients are always welcome. And centers are open seven days a week at Express Care in Rutland and Castleton. Community Health accepts Medicaid and offers sliding scale fees, making healthcare accessible to everyone. Community Health, your health is our mission. I want to move to some uh, questions that we've gotten from readers. I want to start with one from Ben uh, in Worcester. He's a teacher. He said that, you know, despite uh, some of the negativity that's been talked about with this year and with remote learning, he says, uh, parents in our program largely report that their children are thriving. They love school and the remote experience has been largely successful. Uh, How do we reconcile these two pictures? What can we take from the good and mitigate from the not so good? Amanda, I think this relates a lot to what you were just saying. I wonder if you could get us started. Well, I I think that that is about transformation, right? It's like what COVID did was force us to rethink many things and to, as someone said, we had an event yesterday, someone said like force imagination. And that's what this is all about. It's like uh, a needs assessment is a really important thing for districts to look at right now and say, well, what worked for our students right now? Those kids that thrive when before they were isolated in the school system, like now thrive through the virtual learning. How do we support them now, right? Like how do we give them those things? Lila was just talking about that, right? Like some of our classes got so much easier. So how do we take those lessons and say, our kids need this, let's make it happen. So I think there's no such thing as ors. There's only ends. And that's what this this next stage is like, what are those ends that we need to work with? Mm. So Lila, when you, uh, you know, when you hear someone talk about the kids in their program largely thriving, does that, does that square with what, what you've seen in your school? You know, do you feel like the, the majority of, of uh, students there are, are thriving? I, I don't know. I wonder how that, that description squares with what you've seen this past year. It's difficult because with COVID, my communication with my peers has definitely lessened. I, like Bruce, am in a hybrid program and our classes have grown a lot smaller. So I probably interact with like 10 times as less students as I did before. But in my close friend circle, unfortunately, most of my friends are struggling through this time. And it's for many different reasons. And it's hard to generalize all the causes. But I think going back to what Amanda was saying, I just think it's really important we learn from the people who are thriving, the people who aren't. And I, like as somebody who is disabled, have long been an advocate for personalized learning because I understand the, like, I don't know, how how much more you can absorb when the teacher understands your needs and adjusts they're teaching to accommodate you so that you can thrive. And I think that is the solution to many of these things is to just 
um, have that be normal where teachers teach to the students and not to this like false neurotypical like idea they have of like what the student body is. Mm -hmm. I want to maybe throw this to Michael as the person who's kind of on the school administrative side here and ask you sort of the obvious question, which is why can't all learning in schools be individualized and personal? You know, what's the barrier to just uh, getting the kids who need certain things, those things, and getting the kids who need other things, those other things? Such a good question. I think, um, you know, I think it's been a goal of progressive education to, to get there for a long time. And um, one thing that I'm finding helpful, and I think increasingly in the field, we're seeing folks trying to move towards is this concept of universal design for learning. And the idea being that um, instead of, as Salilo just pointed out, instead of designing for this mythical average student that doesn't exist (laughs) and having sort of like this like standardized industrial model of education and trying to shoehorn students into that, to always design for learner variability. And so, um, you know, it's kind of the difference, like for, it comes to us from architecture actually. So, you know, you can build, uh, you can make a building that's not very accessible and then have to do a lot of accommodations to the building, or you can build it in a way, you know, with wide doorways, with push buttons, with ramps from the outset, right? And so that's the concept. Like, can we design from the outset Um, for inclusion and for learner variability. Um, Instead of thinking, instead of having this standardized model that we have to keep jerry-rigging to try to catch people or or, or retrieve people. Um, One, one, you know, I really appreciated Salilo mentioning just something as simple as an asynchronous lesson that you can revisit, right? So if you can, if the student is able to say, okay, well, I'm going to do five minutes of this now and 10 minutes of it later, right? Or I can hit rewind on this video, or I can turn on closed captioning, you know, like if we're in Zoom, I think uh, there've been some benefits, you know, some silver linings just from Zoom. We all complain about Zoom, of course. We all are, have Zoom fatigue, but on Zoom, like you can just flip on closed captioning, right? And not for a student, but just so that it's there, right? It, can, it, it could just be there. And so I think, that's where we're trying to go on the field is towards designing from the outset for learner variability and for inclusion. And that's very different than doing this industrial thing and then trying to fix it or intervention our way out of it. Deborah, do you have thoughts on this? Uh, yes, I was, I was really delighted that universal design for learning is, is being discussed because that comes from architecture, but also from the disability rights movement. And um, it's been so exciting to meet with teachers during this time and have them talk about how universal design has really reframed how we think about learning and how we think about the learning environment. And um, it's something we've been uh, disability advocates who believe in inclusive design, both in buildings and in spaces and how we communicate and how we learn have been saying for a long time. And I think the pandemic has forced us to look at what it means in virtual learning spaces and in other spaces. And I'm hoping people will come back reinvigorated, whether you're in a, sh- a shared physical space or you're doing work virtually to really think about inclusive design and universal design and what it means for individualized learning. Um, and I think that I was thinking of um, 
Bruce's comment around um, chorus and I because I listened to Bernie Sanders um, meeting with youth talking about mental health issues recently and and a few of them mentioned how important theater and dance and music was to them and I think we need to take the things that were still challenging during the pandemic and say how can we plan for them to be really dynamic, both when we're able to be in similar space together, physical space together, um, and when we need to do things online and, 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 and take what we've learned to try to move forward in making an inclusive experience and a, a strong, a, a wonderful experience for students, no matter what environment we're in. So I think that that's, uh, it, it's a real opportunity. And I think if we see students as not just, um, clients or uh, but to see them as equal partners in creating what needs to be in place that we're working collaboratively because they have part their own personal identity and experience with learning helps shape how we need to reshape the learning environment so I and what that means in terms of the role of teachers and educators and other support uh, or people in the schools and in the community. So I, I think it's very exciting. And that's the kind of thing that I'm really hoping we won't say, okay, this is over, this year is done. And then just not forget that we need to plan for this kind of capacity uh, in the future. And even businesses are thinking this day, they're not thinking about going back uh, to the old normal. They're thinking really that, that their way of doing business has changed and we have to prepare students by allowing them to become as creative whether they're in a space together physically or whether they're working distant through di distant strat strategies. So that, uh, you know, that, that sounds like a, a substantial amount of change potentially. Um, and one of the things that we've gotten a number of questions about is kind of how we measure success as we go through this process. Um, and not only that, but how, you know, what, what metrics we have at our disposal to begin with. Uh, I want to ask one question from a reader uh, about standardized tests. Um, and Bruce, I would love to get your take on this first, because I know you got to log off in a few minutes. This comes from Scott in Arlington um, and just asks, why do state education leaders believe that students need to take standardized tests this year? He says, enough talk about the data. We are talking about students' social and emotional well-being during this pandemic. Bruce, I, I wonder if you could give us kind of the student perspective on this. Standardized tests, whether it's this year, uh, or in general, you know, you know, do you see that as something that should be happening? Is this helpful to the structure of how you're learning or, uh, or not? What do you think? You know, so I'm unfamiliar, obviously, with the data side, but just in terms of a student experience part, uh, I, I don't find standardized testing to be very, uh, very helpful. You know, I find it to be kind of unnecessarily difficult for students who like me who are great test takers but might be able to demonstrate knowledge of subject areas in different ways. I, I guess from my perspective I, I wouldn't think that standardized testing would be that valuable. Michael, as somebody who works on sort of the, the learning and curriculum side of things, what are the pros and cons of this both in, in the context of COVID and, and in general? Yeah, I think um, what Bruce was just saying is is pretty typical, right? Like people aren't lining up because they're so excited for standardized testing in general. Uh, if you just think back to your own experience as a student, you know, having said that, there's been work um, from the, you know, the, the Smarter Balanced uh, Consortium to make them more, um, they're, they're more uh, actually in, uh, universally designed features. So there's, they've been designed for, for, 
for, there's some functionality. It's uh, there's been a shift to computer adapted testing, so that's supposed to to zero in on students' knowledge uh, a little bit better. Um, and so there's been attempts at improving them, um, but really at the end of the day, they don't hold as much meaning for, for students as for systems. And so they're, they're still used as this sort of uh, blood pressure check or you know, accountability check for schools, for better or for worse, I think. Um, and so in a country where we don't have a national curriculum, the standardized testing, you know, paradoxically becomes more important. So we're kind of kind of stuck with that to an extent for now, um, from a standpoint of, you know, accessing funding school systems, um, sort of like this accountability measure towards the wider public. So that they're sort of a necessary evil in some ways. And, and there are um, ways that we are able to make sure um, that we can use them as an equity check to make sure that, that subgroups are are not uh, being neglected in school systems um, or historically marginalized groups, I should say. Um, having said all that, you know, um, over-reliance or over-extrapolating from standardized test scores is very common and really poor practice. And, you know, when we, when we think about school report cards that are based on one standardized test um, for a couple of grades in math, English, and maybe, you know, ELA, English, uh, you know, and literacy, um, and maybe science. And then from there, we take these, these aggregate scores and extrapolate and say, this school is way better than this other school. Um, we're on really shaky ground there from a, from a statistical standpoint, from a validity standpoint. So, um, so I think that's sort of the danger. It's not so much that, you know, all testing should be abolished forever. It's more a question of how do, you know, are we working for tests or are they working for us? <laughs> Can we keep them, you know, in perspective and use that data in a way that's a, a healthy blood pressure check instead of it being the, the be all end all in um, how we evaluate schools and students. So Lilo, I saw you kind of shaking your head uh, a few points there. I wonder, uh, I wonder what was uh, going through your head. I didn't mean to be shaking it at him. I was kind of shaking it in like more disbelief just because the topic of standardized tests makes me a little bit, not angry, but just like it, it definitely fires me up because as somebody who is disabled, um, like just the way standardized tests measure intelligence has always um, not included me and I'm, I'm, fine with that but and I don't mean to be preaching to a choir here because I know I, I know everybody probably knows this but like since standardized tests are you know rooted in eugenics and the people they deemed mentally deficient they would they would sterilize them and even though that is obviously illegal I feel like this this like idea that students who don't perform well on standardized tests are mentally deficient still persists. And it's just frustrating because when I don't understand something in class, I go home and I teach it to myself. And that happens a lot because I don't necessarily hear everything in class. And sometimes what essentially happens is doing school at school and then I'm reteaching myself lessons at home and then I'm doing the homework and I just think of 
things like that, like the the hoops that disabled kids go through to access their learning and then to have such a small inaccessible population that is deemed like quote unquote intelligent and all of these other incredible ways that people work and people understand things like aren't appreciated. So just like the general concept of standardized testing makes me angry sometimes. But I didn't mean it to like, I wasn't shaking my head at you, Michael, just like the idea. <laughs> no, we, we appreciate it. I, I do think, um, you know, it's one of a few questions that I think gets uh, a, a little bit at the nuts and bolts of some of the things you've talked about. You know, we've been talking about this in kind of a theoretical way of, of you know, increased flexibility um, and what that might look like. But, you know, when it comes down to it, there's going to be really hard decisions to be made about where to put money and what actually, what changes to make fundamental, like specific changes. Uh, Amanda, I see you've got your hand up. I get fired up too, uh, <laughs> so I just want to, you know, echo what Lilo says, and 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 it again goes back to this thing that where we need to dream big, and how do we move this performance assessment? As someone who came here without English, who are, I am totally mortified with testing, and this is because of the education system, and I blame the education system for having the student loan debt that I have, because I was so afraid of taking tests that I chose a university that didn't give me testing. So this is how, like how these systems like put in place multilingual families that like don't speak English, who are just learning a second language, who are brilliant by the way, in so many other ways. But we put them in these boxes of standardized testing for money as my coach put it. Like this is how you access federal funds, by testing these children in these systems that are not working for, for all, right? And so it's like, how do we envision creating culturally relevant and equitable local assessment systems that rely on minimal standardized testing? Uh, and this is from a good friend of mine who's really doing some work in, in the state, like thinking about uh, this. And how do parents really understand how these systems, can they opt out? How can they support their children? What are the questions that we need to ask the districts around? This is a perfect year where like maybe kids can opt out from testing and it can be a family decision where, you know, there will be no. Um, so, yes, so that that is some of the things that I have to be like, let's again dream. What are the local assessment systems that really uplift all of our children? What are the approaches that we can take um, in all of this from literacy to like all of it, like we need to rethink all of the system, specifically how we define our students based on this flaw of standardized tests. So sorry to disagree with my dear friend, Michael Martin, who I admire and appreciate so much. Uh, but like, this is the one of the topics that I um, feel passionate about. Well, and I, I want to take a minute and kind of bring this back to COVID. If I can kind of try to connect the dots here. It sounds like what I'm what I'm hearing is that uh, because we know that this uh, is a year where kind of any statistics we have are going to sort of be uh, statistical anomalies that, you know, this is the perfect representation of what you said, Michael, of, of not over extrapolating from that data, because we know that it's not really going to tell us all that much because the circumstances were so unusual. Is that kind of what I'm hearing here? 
I just want to say also that I, I, I think it's really important to recognize what standardized tests can't assess. And I was very struck when I talked to a teacher this week and she said she spent a day having assessment conversations with each of her students and got a lot more information about what they learned and how they, how they coped with in, um, the experience of this pandemic and the problem solving skills, the self-awareness, the, the way they um, really, you know, dealt with both academic and, and in, uh, social and emotional issues during this year. And we've had some, ex in Vermont, we've, we've had some extraordinary teachers and educators who know and understand alternative assessment models. And I, I just have always worried with standardized testing is for the people who are not doing well on them, are we using what we need, are we finding ways to reach out to them and do a better assessment of what they learn and what they're capable of learning? Um, because really, if you look at um, colleges and universities, employers now are really more interested in some of those very human um, gaining of skills and knowledge and using it uh, effectively in different settings um, um, to thrive and to succeed. Um, and I just think that this is a really good opportunity, even if we are stuck with doing some standardized testing, to both look at how to make them more universally designed, but also to look at the other kind of assessment models that maybe give you a better sense of the whole person and uh, how they learn and what they've learned in terms of human skills. I'm so glad, uh, I'm so glad you just said that. Because I think it's, uh, I think the problem is actually bigger than standardized testing alone. It's of course how we're using our assessment data. It's the importance that we give it. It's, um, it's all of that. Uh, it's mostly about uh, curriculum with a human face, right? We're talking about uh, people. I loved uh, Salila when he said that uh, teaching is an act of love. I just really that really resonated with me. Um, to bring it back to assessment and metrics and measuring and you know a lot of folks want to take stock of the loss now right so can we measure what exactly what kids have been lost and then can we fill in that gap um i think when we think about you know when we look at our assessment practices whether they're local assessments standardized the various types of screeners that we use to what extent are we is that leading to labeling and sorting of students that's really pernicious that's really problematic and also um, if we isolate race, uh, we know that those practices that we see disproportionality again and again, right, in those labeling practices, labeling and sorting of students. So in its simplest terms, you know, are we using assessment for learning? Or are we obsessed with like being accountants, you know, with like taking, trying to measure everything? Are, are we really trying to select and sort and identify talent? Or do we think our job is really to develop talent, right? And, and the beautiful richness of, of talents, right? That all of our students bring um, into our learning communities. So I think there's a philosophical shift there that's, that's significant. I wanna move on to one more topic. We've only got a few minutes left. I wanna let you guys go in the next, you know, five to 10 minutes or so. Uh, but there's, you know, one, one more thing that I wanna make sure we get into. Uh, I'm gonna throw out a question from Amy uh, from Richmond. She said, what do you see as roles for local philanthropy in supporting youth recovery following a year of remote learning and isolation? Given all that schools and state agencies are doing, where are the gaps? And I do kind of wanna broaden that too, to, you know, again, this question of, we know we've got all this federal aid money coming in. There's about 
a half billion, uh, some of which has already been spent, uh, but you know, there's still hundreds of millions of dollars that are gonna be in play uh, over the next several months. And you know, I wanna get at this question of specifically, where should the money go? You know, what should we be actually spending dollars on in those months to, to kind of get at some of these philosophical shifts that you all have put out? And I think Amanda, maybe if we could start with you, what do you think, what, what should we be spending money on? We should be spending money on a lot of things. But um, I think, you know, we, we do see there is a really important need to fulfill right now around social and mental health support systems. And I think the way that mental health is, you know, envisioned also needs to shift. I'm all about shifting. I was like, we, we there are some things that we learned um, in the pandemic, which is the mutual aid networks that sprouted throughout our state that really fulfilled um, really specific things for the community needs that weren't being taken care of. So communities came together quickly, food, money, gift cards, whatever was needed was there. Um, and I think if we applied a mutual aid system to mental health, we can create some really beautiful and rich support systems for students ahead. So like we know the mental health systems, we don't have enough counselors, we do not have enough therapists. Well, if we don't, then let's create some systems that can support that. And that it will require money, will require time. We have beautiful experts in our state. We have beautiful people willing to create programs. We have um, mentorship pro programs for black youth that, that, you know, like things like that, that, that really can support the emotional health. And that's where some of the money, I think it's gonna be really important um, to fulfill those needs on mental health so that we can uh, really shift our kids and love them and support them. And also supporting the teachers. Um, and I just wanna just give a shout out that it was really hard for teachers and we see you and we know how hard you worked um, and, and yeah, all the love. So Lilo, I wonder from, from a student perspective, where do you see the gaps here? What, where do you think uh, funding should be directed right now? It's interesting. I haven't been able to really think through where the money should go. I can, when it comes to like changes I want to see, a lot of them are cultural changes. And it's really difficult for me to envision um, how funding helps that. But I think probably the system that needs to be set up in order for us to understand our own culture and have the system set up to shift it, um, I think is restorative justice. And I think um, in terms of funding that it, it goes into setting up student groups and getting research from students on what their experiences are with the disciplinarian system, getting rid of SROs. And I, I, I don't know how funding fits into that specifically, but that's what I see as like the first step to shifting culture. And I think that's where a lot of um, my concerns are, are with the culture and how we not just go back to what it was before, but how we use this opportunity to shift our values as a community. 
Well, I wonder maybe maybe if Deborah can help us here. I know you you've kind of been involved in this kind of work of, of making that sort of cultural change happen. So how does that cultural change happen? Well, I, I think one thing that will be really key is for the local school districts who are getting a great deal of funding to really be taking the teams that they're setting up, the recovery teams, and really reaching out to the communities and finding real partnerships. And, and, and not just with service agencies, but also with them, but with community members who represent diverse identities and, and uh, life experiences. So that we can, I mean, I, you can, for example, you can offer mental health services in a way that really is healing and helps a child or, a, or an, an older student build their skills and strengths, or you can have somebody feel as um, patronized or oppressed by the way the service is provided um, as they were without it. So one of the things students have said in a few meetings I've been at recently is sometimes they find their their mentors or their support, the, the support from people in the schools have been key, but sometimes it's not coming from the places they you would expect to go to get it. It's the people who've just been really open and really care about the kids. And so I think that one of the things I hope is that we won't have a few people sitting in a room and deciding what the local plan looks like, but we will really be using the people in the community, the students and the parents and the allies as resources and as experts to reframing how we want to use the critical dollars we're getting and the ones we already have. Many of our local programs and our, our, our regional networks have been really underfunded. This is really an opportunity to say, how do we do it right? As And as Salilo says, it really take a, a whole different reframing, a cultural reframing of how we do it so that um, we're, we're really um, um, making these uh, strategies as effective for all students as possible and that they can really represent the face of the communities and the people that actually live there and that that is that that, that is becomes increasingly visible in our schools. Michael, I wonder what, what do you think this looks like in your district? Yes, I just couldn't agree more with what's being said here. My fellow panelists, um, restorative practice, you know, we've said again and again over the course of the pandemic, you know, we're in this together, but we haven't always seen people act like that. So I think, um, you know, investment in restorative practice where the focus is on social belonging, the focus is on uh, rebuilding community differently, and then thinking about beyond the walls of school, how are we engaging all stakeholders in the wider community is of the utmost importance. And it's something that's really hard, uh, hard for schools to do. Um, to move beyond um, not just a broadcast, like we're pushing out, we're, we're looping everybody in or we're reaching everyone, to actually pulling folks in and making them building um, models that allow for, for, for those voices to be part of the decision-making process and not just like a, a random community forum every once in a while. It's really hard. And so I think that the, the investment needs to go into those structures that will facilitate that. And then there was just one other thing, too, because I know there are a lot of I'm a little concerned as somebody who works in schools about the expectations for, um, for for schools and for this funding and maybe a bit of a gold rush mentality right now with folks like, oh, wow, there's all this money. Um, you know, I'll just say, like, in my, in, I think the allocation for South Burlington is probably going to be around three million dollars, which is a lot of money spread over three years. When you take away the allocation that's already been decided that it needs to go towards summer school and, and extended school day programming, and then when you put some facilities upgrades in there, 
Um, and then you look at the size of the annual budget of a, a district the size of South Burlington, all of a sudden it's not transformational money. So yes, incredible amounts of funds and we're very grateful for that. Um, and um, fortunately there's flexibility built in so that um, this initial, the initial plans I understand are due to the agency of education by June 1st. Um, and however, um, so I, I don't think that all this community participation is going to happen magically in the next month. However, I think there's an opportunity because there's a, there's districts can resubmit plans and update them in an iterative way. Hopefully we can start um, getting those structures in place to bring all stakeholders into this process um, over the course of the next few years. Uh, in the next few weeks, I, I don't know that that will happen just from a logistical standpoint. So I think now is the time to start planning for ways to bring people in and make them part of that process. You can find video of the full event at vtdigger.org or on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash vtdigger. And find all of our COVID-19 coverage in one place at vtdigger.org slash coronavirus. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We used music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger newsroom. See you then.